0: Genesis chapter 27, so in the life of every saint, there are those times when you feel very much like God is no longer with you. You feel like he's not speaking to you. You feel like you're on your own. And if this hasn't happened to you yet, it will. And this is a reality that we need to learn to face, a reality that we are shown in Genesis 27. And Genesis 27 is a chapter that demonstrates to us how to act when this happens by demonstrating to us how not to act when this happens. Verses 1 through 4. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, we don't know why Isaac thought that his death was imminent. But for whatever the reason was, he thought that whatever he was going through at that moment, whatever that was, that this was the big one. What we do know, though, from the text is that he was going blind if he wasn't already blind. And this could have been the thing that led him to believing that he was dying or perhaps just made him wish that he were. But nevertheless, he actually lives through this event And lives another 80 years after this, as told to us in chapter 35. And throughout this chapter, we are told of a lot of talking going on. We hear a lot of talking happening. Isaac talks to Esau and to Jacob. Esau speaks to Isaac. Rebekah speaks to Jacob. Jacob speaks to Rebekah and Isaac. And finally, at the end, Rebekah speaks to Isaac. There's a lot of dialogue within this chapter. But the one person that we never hear from in all of this chapter is the Lord. He is strangely, seemingly silent throughout this entire situation we heard God speak to Isaac in chapter 26 telling him not to go to Egypt despite the famine in verses 2 through 5 we are told of God appearing to Isaac again after the incident where he lies about Rebekah being his wife and in verse 24 there we hear God say I am God of Abraham your father fear not for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake and even in our next chapter will once again hear from the Lord when he speaks to Jacob in a dream. But the Lord is strangely, seemingly silent here. But the people are not. And that's not out of the ordinary. Nor are the actions that are taken either. We read, beginning in verse 5, that Esau was not the only one listening to his father when he spoke. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless it before before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock. Bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. So, after eavesdropping, Rebecca formulates a plan and openly passes that plan to Jacob. Lie to your father. Trick him. Take advantage of the fact that he's blind in order that you can receive a blessing from him seems like a pretty legitimate plan we're told in chapter 25 that those parents had favorites. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob, verse 28. We, don't, we do know why Isaac loved Esau because Isaac I mean so he did things that Isaac loved, namely, he brought in fresh meat to eat, but we're never told why Rebekah loved Jacob there's a lot of speculation goes on of why she loved him more, and they think. That say, they say that it was because he was a quiet man, that he liked living in tents instead of going out hunting. These people that speculate this say that Jacob was, well, effeminate. He was one of those guys that, you know, get along better with women than they do with men. And their speculation is nothing more than that. Just speculation because there's nothing within the text that should ever lead them to think this. Oh, they're going to point out the fact that he was cooking. That was the proof that he was not manly. And yet it was the delicious food that Isaac tells Esau to prepare for him that he loved so much. Perhaps Rebekah loved Jacob because the word of God concerning his life. Perhaps that, the older shall serve the younger. Verse 23 of chapter 25. Perhaps Rebekah loved Jacob because... He was the joy that was set before Jesus. But whatever the case, we're never told that either of them don't love both children, just that they had affinity one above the other. And Rebekah, hearing the command to Esau and desiring the blessing to go to Jacob, she has a plan. Verse 11, though, but Jacob said, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I will seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. And his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. And then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob, verses 11 through 17. So Rebekah was all in on this plan, to the point that she's willing to take whatever punishment comes because of it. So Jacob goes along with the plan. And by the way, if he was so domesticated, as some people think, then why is it that his mom, Rebecca has to make the food that he's going to give to Isaac? But after the plan is hatched, the costume is donned, all things are prepared, now it's in the hands of Jacob to pull this thing off. Verse 18, so he went in to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau your firstborn i have done as you have told me now sit up and eat in my game that you may that your soul may bless me but isaac said to his son how is it that you have found it so quickly my son and he answered because the lord your god granted me success did you hear did you just hear what this man did he used the name of god in a lie oh he may have been thinking Well, what I said wasn't exactly a lie, since the fact is that I had the meal with me. I mean, and I am standing there, and that's all true. So in a manner of speaking, God had granted him success. But he had lied earlier when he told his dad that he was Esau. And this lie is not unlike all other lies. Once you begin with one, you're then forced to lie again and again to enforce that first lie which is what happens next in verses 21 through 24. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he didn't recognize him because his hands were hairy like the brother's hands Esau. So he blessed him and he said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Isaac knew his younger son Jacob, and he knew that something was afoot here, which is why he asked Jacob to come close to him so that he could feel of his arms. And Jacob is forced to lie once again. Only this time, there's no way that he could use a technicality concerning his lie. He was asked directly if he was his brother, and he lied to his father a second time. But Isaac wasn't buying it yet, which is why we have verses 25 through 27. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought the wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near me and kiss me, my son. So he came and he kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of the garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is of the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. And then verses 28 and 29 are that blessing that Jacob so longed for. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and of plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So the blessing is given to Jacob. He's received that which he's been striving for. The ruse to fool that poor old blind father has worked. And then we're given verses 30 through 32. And as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from his presence of Esau, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. And he also had prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he answered, I'm your, first, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. And is it any wonder then that we have verse 33? Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, he shall be blessed. He, an old man, had been duped by his son, And this caused him to react in a very visible way. He was mad, clean, through. Or was he? Was it anger that caused him to tremble violently? Or was it the realization that because he favored Esau over Jacob, that he had for all these years been going against the will and the word of God in his life? Because 70 years earlier, when the Lord had answered his prayer concerning his wife, Rebecca being barren, and it caused her to conceive. During her pregnancy, these brothers were already causing problems with each other, which prompted her to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples are within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Genesis 25-23. And that verse may seem a little bit ambiguous to us, but it wasn't to them. They would have both understood the implications of what the Lord had just told Rebekah. The younger son was his man. He was the one through whom the promises to Isaac, the promises to Abraham would flow. Not the older, but Isaac. But Isaac, instead of heeding the word of God in the lives of his sons and obeying the word of God, steadfastly stuck to human tradition and gave that birthright to the oldest son. After all, if he had gone against human tradition, if he had given the birthright to the youngest son, he would then have to explain to everybody he ever came up with, why in the world would you do that? He would have had to to have been forced to stand on the word of God. And even after finding out that despite his best efforts to give the birthright to Esau, that Jacob had acquired it like God had said, he still wouldn't admit defeat and go along with the predestined will of God. He was going to give that blessing, the blessing of Abraham, which would have been passed down The blessing and the promises from God to the son that he favored. Instead of bowing to the will of God and blessing the son that he, God, favored. But now, after being deceived, after finding out that all his best laid plans had fallen apart and the will of God had prevailed, now he submitted. He had been found out. He, he realized at that moment that he had been for all these years acting in rebellion and not in obedience. And he submitted, which is why he could, even in the heat of that moment, tell Esau, yes, and he shall be blessed. He knew that as badly as his younger son had acted in deceiving him, and he had acted bad, that he, Isaac, had been acting just as bad, if not worse, toward the God that he knew as his fear. Because he had been, been willfully disobedient to God. He had, for years, had a large chunk of his decaying, blinding body, blinding him to the sin that he couldn't see. The sin and favoring the son of perdition over the chosen son. But no longer... God has blinded this favored, loved, and joy set before Jesus' Son. Blinded this man in order to bring about the opening of his eyes. But that firstborn son, the son that was not the favored of the Lord, that one, that man who was truly the better man, but who was not the joy that was set before Christ, He wasn't willing to concede defeat. Verses 34 through 36. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? What he says to his dad, what he's asking of him, seems kind of odd to us. We think that Isaac should have been able to give him some sort of blessing. After all, when Jacob is on his deathbed, he gives all 12 of his sons a blessing. But this isn't what Esau is asking of his father what he is asking of his father is to have the promise of God, the blessed promise that had been given to his grandfather, then passed to the second son of Abraham in Isaac, to have that singular blessing torn in two, halved, portioned, something, anything. He still didn't understand that the blessing of the Lord is singular. You are either blessed or you're not. There are no haves. And there are no kindness. If you are in his family. You are all the way in. And if you are not. You're not. And saints. This, should, this truth. This truth should give you. Great comfort. In your standing with the Lord. If he has redeemed you. If he has shown you your sinfulness of your heart, and the great salvation that is found in his Son, then you have been given the same amount of blessing as every other Christian. You are no less saved, no less sanctified, no less glorified, and no less loved than Paul or John or any saint from eternity past to eternity future. You are either in, and if you are in, you are in fully, or you're out. But if you're in, your loving Father will bring you to the end of yourself, as he has done with Isaac, in order that you can see and understand him better. As you shake off more and more of the old man of sin in your life, Listen to how Isaac now explains the blessing to Esau. Remember, at that moment, he still favored Esau. He still loved him as his favorite son. And he still favored him over Jacob. But now, now he has understood the reality of the sin that he has been living and how this has affected his family. Verse 37 through 38. Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me also, even me, O oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And as we will see, The weeping of that man Esau, that man's man, is not because he's sorrowful over his sin. And he's not sorrowful, he's not crying because he's desiring to be of the elect, to be the favored son of God. He's crying because he wants stuff. He's acting like Veruca Salt and whining because he's not getting exactly what he knows what he deserves. But his dear old dad does have a blessing for him after all. Verses 39 and 40. Then Isaac, his father, had answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your blessing, or shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of the heaven on high. And your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Again, the gist of what is said to Esau, it can be lost on our modern American ears. What Isaac is telling Esau is the reality of his eternal state. You will break free from your brother, but you will never be of the family of God. And there are a lot of people, a lot, many people don't like this truth concerning the election of God. A truth that is fleshed out in the lives of Jacob and Esau. A truth that that so many, that so many so-called evangelicals will do word gymnastics to try to change the meaning of truths such as Malachi, chapter 1, verse 2 to 3, where God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. A truth that Paul then confirmed in defending the sovereignty and the predestination of God. In Romans 9, verses 10 through 16, he says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the younger, or the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Those that try to manipulate this truth, they do so to get God off of the hook, the not fair hook that they think that He is on. If this is truth, but they don't understand the reality of the blessing that we are told that Esau does. That, I'm sorry, that Isaac does give to Esau. To them, to them, the fact that He gives him a blessing, they think, doesn't this mean because He blessed him? Doesn't this mean that there's still hope for him? So what is this blessing that Isaac gives to Esau? What does it mean? What does it mean? Because I thought that God hated Esau. So why would there be a blessing for him? Well, there's this old Greek saying that goes something like this. When the gods desire to punish you, they will grant you your prayers. And that's almost correct. But God, the true and living God, he does very often give the things of the world, the pleasures and the riches of this world to those that he does not love. He gives them exactly what they desire, just as he will for all eternity. They will never be able to say that he withheld from them any of the things that they desire. He gave them all to them, and yet they still were not grateful. And in the end, they are like their father, Satan, who values the things of God, the things that he gives above God himself. And we, the redeemed, we think that God shouldn't give them things, shouldn't give them money, shouldn't give them the ease of life. He shouldn't do that to those that are not his favorites. Especially while at the same time, more often than not, he brings suffering and affliction on those that are of the elect. And we don't understand this. And we don't because we desire our best life now. Instead of desiring our best life now and for all eternity. Because our best life now is not found in comfort and ease. But those that are like Esau, those that God hates, he very often gives them over to the things that are their gods. Those things that they think make this life worth living. And ask yourself that. What is it that you would look at in your life and go, this makes my life worth living? My house? My job? My sports? My spouse? Those things, those good things, they are worshipped instead of the true and living God. That God that they don't desire, the God that they do not love, the God that they in fact hate, and they do not desire to be in the presence or under his will, So God gives them what they desire. And very often in this realm, and most assuredly in the next. And this is the reality of all people that God sends to hell. That he rightly, justly, in his holiness, sends to hell. He allows them to stand before him in the presence of all that is good for a single moment. They are allowed to taste of the goodness that is God for a moment. And they hate it, at which point he casts them into an eternity where they get exactly what they desire, not in his presence. And the reaction by Esau proves where his heart is at. Verse 41, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days are mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. What Esau said is, I'm going to be civil. I'm going to go along and play like all is okay. But as soon as dear old dad is dead, my brother will follow him into the grave. I'm going to bide my time and wait to have my revenge. But Esau obviously underestimated the grapevine. There's this old saying that kind of no longer makes sense in our modern age. But it goes like this. The fastest way to spread information is telegram, telephone, and telewoman. Anyway, in any event, as we read in verses 42 through 45, Rebekah gets wind of the true feelings of her oldest son. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. And so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you now therefore my son obey my voice i heard this before didn't work out too good arise flee to laban my brother in haran and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him then i will send and bring you from there why shall i be bereft of both of you in one day And this then leads to the only, by the way, this this is the only conversation that we ever read between Rebekah and Isaac. This is it. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of these Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Do you recall how last our last chapter ended last week? Do you remember that verses 33, verses 34 and 35 of chapter 26? Just kind of seemingly out of nowhere thrown in there. And Esau was 40 years old, and he took a wife, uh, took as a wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they brought bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. Esau was 40 when he married these women. So the question we should ask is, did chapter 27, does that happen right on the heels of chapter 26? Were were both Jacob and Esau in their early 40s when all this happened? No. And we know this because when you do the math, starting with Joseph in Egypt and working backwards, you understand that Jacob is 71 years old when he shows up at the doorstep of Laban. But with this statement, Rebecca successfully makes it possible for Jacob to flee from Esau and not be murdered when dear old dad dies. What she didn't know, though, was that she would never see Jacob, her son, her favorite son, ever again. What she didn't know was that the scheming that brought about the thing that God said would happen would not only severely damage the relationship that her sons had with each other, but not only damage the relationship that she had with Esau and with her husband, but it would bring about an end to the contact that she would ever have with Jacob. And in all of this ugly, nasty wickedness, God was silent. Not a peep. Not a word. He just seemingly didn't care. But that's only from a human perspective. And this is why we are given this account. It was never in doubt. Hear me on this, saints. It was never in doubt who the promised son was. Even though God predestined Esau to be born first. At the same time, he had chosen the blessing and election of Jacob from eternity past. He had made these truths known to Isaac and Rebekah. Before, before the boys were born, the firstborn would serve the younger. And to them, that didn't compute. We are never told why Isaac loved Esau. Perhaps they got along better, or perhaps it was because he was the oldest, the firstborn. But either way... Isaac had the word of God given to him, and he didn't like it. So he determined it doesn't apply, and he acted as if it did not apply. He obviously, and this is something that is not stated, but it's very obvious. He obviously went against the word of God and told Esau that the birthright was yours. Even though God had made it abundantly clear, it was not. Had he followed the word of God and not human traditions, that entire lunchtime incident between Esau and Jacob would could could never, not would never, could never have happened. Because he didn't follow the word of God, we have chapter 27. Isaac had to have known of that birthright incident happening between Jacob and Esau. And even then, even after he found out that Jacob got the birthright, with that full knowledge, he didn't come clean and tell Esau the truth. He didn't submit to the word of God and tell him, you're not the chosen son. I can't bless you. Jacob is. And that he, Isaac, that I've been wrong. I've been wrong in not obeying the Lord. For all these years and he lived in rebellion even though he knew the Lord as his fear and that he was rendered blind wasn't an accident either because that physical blindness that he had was indicative of the spiritual blindness that he'd been walking in for so long and it took this blindness to bring about the realization of the sin in his life and we know this because when he found out that he had blessed Jacob, we are told in verse 33, that Isaac trembled very violently. And like I said, it would be very easy to think that he's just mad. Oh, he's hurt that his son did this. It wasn't either. Unlike this chapter following 26, chapter 28 does happen right on the heels of this chapter. And the opening verses there, we hear Isaac Saying this. He called Jacob and blessed him, and commanded him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Haram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's brother, your mother's father, and from there take for yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you, and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become an assembly of peoples. May he also give you the blessings of Abraham. To you and to your seed with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God has given to Abraham. And that blessing can only come from a man who is now wholeheartedly submitted to the will of God in his life. A man who has been finally taken to the end of himself and found God standing right there as he had been the entire time. A man who in his blindness could finally see the glory of God that radiates all creation. And in this all, Isaac and Rebekah, they are of the Lord. They are saints made holy by the blood of the land. And God uses their sin in, the li- in their lives to bring about his intended purposes. But before you take solace in your life, in sinning, in not obeying the Lord, we would do well to examine the outcome of their sin. Like Isaac and Esau, we are never told why Rebecca loves Jacob, the favored son, more than Esau. We have to make assumptions. But could it be, like I said, the word of the Lord that had been spoken to her concerning her younger son? Maybe that's why she favored him. Perhaps But the means, her sin, her sin, the means that she used to conspire against her husband. Not only are they sinful, but they're very indicative of the family that she had grown up in. Laban is her brother, and he's a trickster. He manipulates, he lies, he uses people for his gain. And she seems to have learned these traits well um, from her youth as well. And this is something that all young people, well, all people that are looking for a mate would do well to keep in mind. If you want to know what your spouse is going to look like in 20 years and what they're going to act like, more often than not, just look at their family and you'll see. And Rebecca demonstrates that she is like her brother Laban, Oh, she's good at scheming. But what was the outcome of her schemes? Yes, the younger son received the blessing, as he would have anyway. But she would never see that son that she loves more ever again. And the elder son, the older son, the one that she has willfully offended, he's going to remain in her life. With his wives for the rest of her life. How about Jacob? The man was willing to go along with his mother's schemes. Oh, He's going to be forced to flee. He's going to have to be forced to flee from the inheritance and the blessing and that birthright that was just so important to him in his flesh. Forced to live the rest of his parents' lives away from them. He's going to have to flee to relative safety of his relatives. And there, he, like his father, is going to be tricked. And that trickery is going to cost him years of his life. And all of this happened at the will of God. And in all of this, God was silent. And we can wonder... And why God did not intervene in this incident. Why didn't he prevent this treachery that was going to destroy the unity of this family? Why would he allow the sinful actions of people to pollute his perfect will? This is the same question that that prophet Habakkuk had. Who in his day couldn't understand what God was doing. Why he would allow sin and sinful men to rule. He cried out to the Lord in chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry out for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you, violence, and you won't save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted, verses 1-4. through And saints, would you be willing to pray that kind of prayer? That kind of honest prayer? Well, there is his question. Lord, I don't understand. I can't comprehend. I'm not hearing from you either. And then the Lord answered. The Lord said, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who will march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than their evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. And at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men. Whose own might is their God. God says that. That's his justice. God uses sin. To punish sin just as he does in our account today as well. And in both cases, he does so in his predestined will. And this isn't an isolated incident. The redemption price paid for all that are predestined for salvation was brought about through the sinful actions of man in the greatest act of sin that man has ever done. We're told that in Acts chapter 4. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations or the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What was that plan? What was his hand? It was the murder of his son. The question we should ask though is why was God silent through all of this? Why didn't he just speak? He was speaking, and he is never silent. We're told in Psalm 19.1, the heavens shout the God of God's glory. Romans 1.20 shows very clearly how creation proves God's existence and speaks through it, how he speaks through it. God speaks not only through his word, but also through this world. So when you think that God is being silent in your life, when you're like, I can't hear God, I'm not seeing God in my life, I feel so alone, like where is God? Stop. Walk outside and look around. Look at his creation that is shouting his glory to you at that very moment. And at the same time, You would do well to understand God is not a genie in a bottle. He doesn't come when you call. No matter what means you use, no matter what special words you use, no matter what special services you use, no matter what your special actions are, even if they're fasting and prayer, do not use them as the uh, the method of thinking that you're rubbing a bottle expecting the genie to show up. He is the master. We are his slaves. And the common denominator in all that thinking that is going on in chapter 27 is that none of the the conversations that happened, none of them were necessary. God had already spoken. He had already spoken concerning the birthright and the blessing. He didn't need to speak again. God is a good father. He doesn't count to three. He doesn't say things over and over again as if he doesn't mean it. He didn't need to speak again. He wasn't going to change his mind. And he made his will very clear. And now he's using these sinful, flawed people, both of his family and even those that were not of his family, to bring about the ends that he had already said was going to happen. Saints, do you realize that God knows what's best for you? Do you realize that? And because of this, we, we, we should do as he's directed us. He's given us his word for our lives, just like he did Isaac or Rebekah. The younger shall rule over the older. And he brought about his will. And it was their sin that he used to train them, to reveal himself to them, to allow them to understand that while he did not speak to them directly in their sinful actions, he was not silent during their sinful actions. He was never inactive. He was always on the throne. And this is why we must heed the warnings of God. We must learn the lessons of those giants that have gone before us. David understood this lesson. He gave us, he gave us the answer, the answer. If you want to know, how do I do this? David gave us the answer for what we are to do in such cases. He said in Psalm 1,1911, "I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you." He said in Psalm 40 verse eight, "I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart, and this delighting, this storing up of This is not just a casual mental nod to the Word of God. I'm going to do my little quiet devotional reading time, close my Bible and walk away and do what I want because I've done my genie thing. I've rubbed that bottle and God's going to be there for me. David is telling us that the Word must become our life. And when that happens, this is evidenced in your life. When you live in obedience, and in doing so, don't think highly of yourself because of it. It's then that you understand that you're only doing that which you've been commanded to do. A truth that the author of Hebrews draws on in Hebrews 11.10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. And I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And there will be times. Saints, hear me on this. There will be times when God is seemingly silent. When you will not feel his presence. When you may feel like he has forsaken you. Life is hard. Life is not fair very often. The pain that you experience is real. The loneliness that you have is crushing. It's truth. But it's in that moment that you must realize real truth. When you must turn to the Word of God, when you must remember Zephaniah 3.17... The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. How many of you actually think that God does that? He exalts over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love, and he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Deuteronomy 31, 6-8. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. In those moments when you feel alone, God has not left you. He has not forsaken you, no matter how you feel. Which is why the author of Hebrews could admonish us to keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. And this is why we must make the continual practice of prayer and fasting a part of our life. Not for something do you realize that the, we have formulated god you want something you want to know the answer for something oh you need to pray and fast pray and fast no we should be praying and fasting for god and it's then at those times when that happens then you can know the answer is given i know we should be praying For someone, not something. No matter how good that something is, even if it's healing or provision. Because as good as both of those things are, they're only good. Only God is great. And this is why we should pray and fast to and for God. Because he is great. But again, God is not easy. He won't be had on our terms. He will not make a special exception because of who you are. He is God. And if you are the joy that is set before him, then you will have to learn You will be forced to learn how to slough off this body of death in order to experience the reality of who you are in him. And you do this just like Isaac, through obedience. Obedience to the word. Obedience in the big, easy things. Confess, believe, get baptized, join a church, be the church. But also in the seemingly small things personal prayer and fasting, personal holiness. And it's when you seemingly cannot hear God, it is then that you should stop and ask yourself this. What is it that he has specifically made clear to me that I am to obey him in and I'm not? Dear ones, can I give you a tip based off of personal experience, something that I have found to be so true because I've suffered in my sin because of it, tap out. You're not going to win this wrestling match. Submit. God is going to have his way. Seriously, I don't care how good you are at judo. God will seriously, he will put you in a full Nelson and he will just hold you there and make it tighter and tighter and tighter until you come to the end of yourself and you finally tap out and you submit. God is good. And his way, his life that he has for you is not just good. It's holy, and it's pure. And it's when we come to the end of ourselves. And it's when we come and are forced, like Isaac, to see that. When God is seemingly silent, it's then that these personal disciplines of prayer and fasting, when they are very helpful, it's then... When he's seemingly silent, he's calling you to obedience, calling you to see him better. It's then that he's preparing you to lose more of your old self and to be able to see him better. And it's then that you can echo that other man who so very often cried out to the Lord who seems silent. Psalm 62, verses 1 through 8. David said, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. This is the reality of what's going on in this man's life. He doesn't hear from God, and yet at the same time, he is being crushed. And in that moment, he says, For God alone, my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him because God is a refuge for us. And that is reality. And that is the truth. And the only truth that we need to hang on to. Let's pray.